it's a common thing for people to wish and to hope that they're living in the last days. I have my own reasons for hoping that. I don't think it's likely, but if we are in the last days, you can rest assured that I will rejoice in the return of Jesus and the consummation of all things. Uh, as those who are less likely to think it's coming soon are want to say, I'm more than happy to change my eschatological views uh, when I rise up to meet Jesus. So, why... Are so, why would we be so eager to hope that we are in the last days? Well, one of the reasons I think is not such a healthy reason, and I think it's also a mistaken reason. That is, uh, I, I think people feel like it, it, you know, to, to not live at the time of the climax of history is to, in temporal terms, to be kind of in the backwaters uh, to be from Bethlehem, to, uh, to, to not be in the center of the stage and to have a small part. Well, I think that is unhealthy again because I think it's a, a prideful thing, but I also think it's wrong because I actually think that if you really want to have an impact, the important thing is not that you be born at the end of the story, but that you be born as early as possible in the story. Because the earlier you're born, the more impact you will have going forward. The more, you know, when you set foundations, you establish what will be built after you. That if you lived at the very beginning of time, you would set the stage for the rest of time. Which is one of the reasons why I'm so incredibly interested in these early chapters in the book of Genesis. And when we come to chapter 9, uh, it's almost like there's just this sprinkling of, uh, or a downpour of uh, new uh, firsts in Genesis chapter 9. Life-changing, epic-changing, reality-shaping uh, things happening here in this chapter. If you remember when we were in Genesis 8, we got to that place where uh, the ark has settled on the ground and uh, Noah and his family has uh, gotten off the ark. We've spent a good amount of time talking about the value uh, of the establishment of God's natural law uh, and how that impacts our understanding of reality. Well, now in chapter 9, uh, we have what I told you was coming, uh, the reiteration of the dominion mandate. You know, whenever I emphasize the significance and importance of the Dominion Mandate to people, uh, I, I often assume that there's probably something in the back of their heads saying, well, now, wait a minute, that's prior to the fall. Uh, certainly things have changed since then. And yes, it's true things have changed. But one of the things that hasn't changed is God's imposition of the Dominion Mandate on humanity. Just as God began Adam and Eve in a context of blessing and then gave them law, so Genesis 9 begins, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, 
Upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Now that is good news. That's world changing. We get to eat meat. Then he goes on and says this, God's still speaking to Noah and his family. Uh, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Then verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This, friends, is the first establishment by God of civil government. We know in Romans chapter 13 that the civil government is God's ministry of justice, that he gives them the sword, that he gives them that sword not in vain. Uh, but that Truth is not something new in Romans 13. It's something that goes all the way back here to Genesis chapter 9. God establishes the responsibility of mankind to bring to pass justice against those uh, who harm other people, who, who injure them or who take their lives. Now, what's interesting is you not only have the establishment of government here, civil government, but you have the establishment of capital punishment. My father tells the story uh, back in the, uh, I guess, late 70s, or excuse me, late 60s or early 70s, uh, during that time period uh, when the Supreme Court of the United States held that capital punishment uh, was a violation of the Constitution, an example of cruel and unusual punishment, and states were doing away with the uh, death penalty, that the governor of Pennsylvania, I believe it was Milton Sapp at the time, uh, not only uh, signed a law getting rid of the death penalty, uh, but Milton Sapp argued that he did this on the basis of his commitment to the word of God, which says, thou shalt not kill. Well, uh, Mr. Sapp was probably about as good a theologian as he was a governor, which is to say not very good at all. Uh, God in the Ten Commandments forbids the, the killing, the, the unjust killing. Uh, here he commands the killing of those who kill. Uh, and there's nothing at all contradictory about this because the intent in the Ten Commandments, of course, is to uh, deal with murder, with uh, uh, reckless manslaughter and those kinds of things, not the execution of justice by God's ministers of justice. Now, I want you to understand something about capital punishment. We have uh, all sorts of folks uh, out there in the church, outside the church, who uh, take the view that in order for a person to be consistent, consistently and comprehensively pro-life, you have to not only be uh, against abortion, you have to be uh, against warfare, and you have to be against capital punishment. Well, again, 
not such clear thinking. The reason that this law, this command of God, the establishment of civil government and the establishment of capital punishment, it's not a diminishment of the dignity and the value of humans, but rather it is an affirmation of it. You know, those who are opposed will say, well, now look, if we really value human life, then we would never intentionally take it as we do in the context of capital punishment. The scripture takes the view, however, that when we value human life, we value it so deeply, so profoundly, that we affirm that the only punishment fitting for taking it is taking the life of the one who's guilty. This is how serious it is. Now, I want you to understand also why it's so serious, which is also here in the text. The second half of verse 6, in the first half, God says, this is what you're going to have to do. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, comma, for God made man in his own image. The reason it is such a terrible thing to take a human life is because of the image of God which is imposed on man. When I was a student in seminary, I took a class, uh, part of systematics, that included uh, a study of the doctrine of man. And I was blessed to have as my systematics professor uh, a well-known uh, Reformed theologian by the name of R.C. Sproul. And if you've spent much time listening to him, then you are maybe familiar with uh, this strategy that he would often use, wherein he would say something shocking and something that was not only shocking, but something that went uh, opposed to everything you know that he stands for, and then, in the end, he would show you how he still believed the things you thought he believed, and he believed the things that he said. Let me give you an example. Uh, I remember getting uh, fooled by one of these at a Ligonier conference many years ago. Uh, my father began to talk about how we are justified by works. And he said that no one is justified apart from works and that works are absolutely necessary and not just necessarily present, but that works are uh, the ground of our justification. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my stars, has he had another stroke? Is it, is it just sort of a brain freeze? Uh, you know, why is he just forgetting his knots to put those in there? Uh, and then eventually he comes and says, of course, that the ground of our justification is the righteousness of Christ. He's affirming double imputation. He's affirming the uh, imputation uh, of the active obedience of Christ to us, that we're not just having our sins covered, but we receive his righteousness. Well, in the same way, in this particular class, he went on and on about how man has no intrinsic dignity. And every one of us is just listening and thinking, oh, what is he talking? I mean, surely, what about the imago dei? What about the fact that we're made in God's image? He's, you know, beating that drum his whole uh, public ministry. What in the world is he talking about? 
Well, eventually he got to the point and he said, well, man absolutely enjoys dignity and value precisely because of the image of God. And we thought, oh, well, see, now that's the right answer. Why was he giving us the wrong answer? Then he said, what you have to understand is that while the image of God is universal, that is, it applies to all human beings, it is not intrinsic, but rather is extrinsic. It is stamped on us from outside us rather than being inherent in us. Gosh, wasn't he a great theologian? Oh, my stars, how I loved sitting at his feet and learning. Well, the same point is made here in Genesis chapter 9. Man is made in God's image. That's why it's a horrible, wicked thing uh, for man to be killed. Now, also in this text, in this particular chapter, we see what happens as uh, Noah, we're told, becomes a, a bit of a farmer and he uh, plants his grapes in his vineyard uh, and those grapes grow and eventually they are transformed into wine. And then we have what I would argue is yet another uh, picture anyway of the fall of humanity. You could argue that Adam and his, or excuse me, Noah and his family are starting the whole process over again. The world's been washed clean. Now they're put back in this garden paradise of this washed clean world where the animals fear man. Uh, and Noah grows his grapes and Noah sins and drinks too much. And he is now asleep and naked in his tent and along comes ham. Now, friends, there are competing theories about this whole story, and uh, I, I don't necessarily want, to, well, no, I, I definitely don't want to cover all of those competing theories. Uh, all I want to do is emphasize from this story, whatever it is, whether it is exactly how it happened or whether or, uh, Moses is using a kind of uh, euphemism here uh, and speaking delicately about uh, a, an even more gross and heinous sin uh, on the part of him. We, we don't know. I don't know. I don't really have a position. I'm not sure it's that important. What we do know is that Ham refused to honor his father. Ham refused to honor his father and he delighted to expose his father's weakness, his father's folly, his father's sin. Some of you may know that my most recent book is a book called Growing Up with R.C., describing my life as R.C. Sproul Jr. Uh, what you may not know is that in the run-up to the release of that book, uh, there were, out on the internet where these things tend to happen, rumors swirling that I was going to pull a Frankie Schaefer, that I, that I was writing this book as an expose on my father, and I was going to uh, air the family's dirty laundry. Nothing could be farther from the truth. 
There is nothing in this book that in any way denigrates my father in any way. Was he a sinner? Yes, of course he was. Just like me. Uh, was, you know, do I know about sins that other people don't know about? Of course I do. But by God's grace, by the way, the very grace that my father taught me about uh, from my youth and modeled for me from my youth, that very grace uh, has given me the power to not go out there and uh, herald my father's sins. Ham didn't have that same blessing that I've had. And so he goes to his brothers. He exposes his father's sin, but the brothers do well. And from that, we get uh, this sort of uh, paradigm, this sort of uh, precursor to uh, what's going to happen with the various and sundry tribes of the world. We know that the Shemites become, or at least include, uh, the children of Abraham. Uh, And we know that the three brothers and their wives sort of went their separate ways and began to spread out. And one of the things that comes out of this is a a, a ridiculous, unwarranted conclusion uh, that's racial at this point that suggests that, oh, see, Ham and his son Canaan uh, are cursed because of this sin, and you can and God gave them the mark of this curse by m- making them dark skin. It's hogwash. It's absolute eisegesis, the imposition of uh, earthly racial, actually evolutionary categories to this particular story. Now, I'm not I'm not saying that there aren't uh, you know connections between these three brothers and different different branches of humanity. I will affirm again that at the end of the day, we all go back to Noah and before that to Adam. So this idea that there are multiple races, I think, is profoundly misleading. There are family groups, there are cultural uh, affinities and things of that nature. But humans are humans, and we need to remember that. So Noah pronounces his curse on uh, Canaan, the son of Ham. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. That's the end of the story of Noah. Oh, well, that's not quite true. The last verse tells us, After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Well, quite an eventful chapter. A lot of things going on, a lot of changes coming to pass, a lot of trajectories being laid down, as I mentioned, about what a glorious thing it would be, and I suggest is, in fact, for us to be yet early uh, in the history of God's story, to have the capacity and the blessing of establishing trajectories. Let me tell you, let me close with this. If you want to do well with your trajectory, there's a very important lesson in this text. Honor your father and your mother. It's not complicated. 
So often we have this view that came straight from the pit of hell that says the way you have a good life is you study hard, you acquire specialized skills that are in demand in the marketplace, and then you land a good job, you make good money, you lived in a good neighborhood, and then you have a happy, comfortable family, and that's the good life. Well, friends, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that if you wanted to go well with you in the land, then what you do is you honor your father and your mother. That's what we fathers and mothers need to be teaching our children. That's what children need to be doing for their parents. That's what we who are both need to be doing in both directions. Let's be Shem and Japheth and put to death our inner ham. Let's honor our fathers and our mothers.